and welcome to this week's episode of Crimes Against Art. I am your host, Michelle, and this week, unfortunately, Isabella, our regular co-host, is unable to be here. However, instead, I have a very wonderful special guest introducing Ella. Hi, everybody. Very excited to be here. Yay! So, Ella, do you want to tell the Crimes Against Art listeners a little bit about yourself just to start off with? Sure thing. I guess I'm what is known as an arts professional, which translates to a bartender with a degree. Um, (laughs) But I guess in relation to kind of the art world, um, I recently graduated from my master's in art curatorship, focusing on classical Greece. I've worked all over the world. I did a little sabbatical at the Guggenheim in Venice. I've worked at a number of galleries here in Melbourne, just been interning here and there. And um, I guess I'm just waiting for my big break, ready to really sink my teeth into something. And I've always really been uh, interested in uh, Michelle's podcast. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> very happy to have you as well. Yeah. So Ella, with all her wonderful, wondrous depth of art knowledge, is going to have a great time on this week's episode, I hope, because we are doing another Artful Shenanigans episode, our classic episodes which discuss all the happenings in the art world at the moment. I'm very excited. Yeah, there's been a lot of like tidbits and a lot of kind of people shitting around the art world and just doing stupid things. I'm very excited to kind of delve into that. <laughs> I think it's so funny how when I first thought about these episodes, I was like, oh, I have to make sure they're spaced really far apart in case we don't have enough material to talk about each episode. And then every time I look, I'm like, there is too much material. There's always someone someone doing something stupid. (laughs) It just never stops. It does not. So as usual, we are going to start the episode with a quick fire round. This is when I will be talking through a slew of events that have happened, the weird and wacky, the gossipy, the funky fresh. And then at the end, we will reconvene to talk about it. All right. Let's go. All right. The Dallas Museum of Art has teamed up with M. Chroma, which is a company that that specializes in the production of glasses with lenses that help with changing color perception. And now visitors to the gallery for their recent exhibition will be able to experience the artworks with this technology that enhances the color perception of visitors with red-green deficiency. Michael Schneierson, who writes for the Vanity Fair but also loves art world gossip more than probably any of us, is coming out with a new book, this time an unauthorized biography of Larry Gagosian. There is no release date or title yet, but it's something that's definitely in the works. Our listeners might have heard of this one. There's currently a Mondrian exhibition in Germany's Kunsthammlung Nordrhein Westfalen K20 Museum, and it has been discovered that one of the paintings, New York City One, has been displayed upside down since it was first seen in public. This seems to have been almost foreshadowed in an episode of Arthur. One of the characters, Binky Barnes, notices that a geometric painting in the style of Mondrian is hanging correctly in the episode called Binky Barnes Art Expert. I'm watching that episode after this. <laughs> oh my god, amazing. I'm going to go and watch it. Carolyn Maloney, who is a Democratic representative of New York to Congress, is currently under investigation by the House Ethics Committee for apparently trying to uh, wriggle her way into a few too many Met Galas. Russian egg maker Fabergé has collaborated with Game of Thrones to design some dragon-themed jewellery, dripping in all the jewels that you can imagine, which is um, quite on the nose if we want to start thinking about the symbolism of that. The 2022 Venice Biennale has attracted more than 800,000 visitors, which is setting an all-time record even with travel restrictions. And finally, our favourite, as Isabel says, the patron saint of the podcast, Anna Delvey, has debuted some new artwork recently. 
on Saturday, the 3rd of December in Miami. She appeared at this launch, which was sponsored by The Locker Room, which is a Brooklyn-based gallery and, quote, creative house via Zoom because she's currently still under house arrest. So what do you think, Ella? Oh, my God. Which one do you want to start with first? Like, I love all of them. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about upside-down painting. I think that is hilarious. Yeah. Like, you think about the amount of money curators are paid, which the two of us very much know because we've Mm -hmm. been trying to break into that field for years. (laughs) Yeah. You think the amount of money and the amount of research that goes into hanging these artworks. So like the final walkthrough, not a single curator, assistant curator, director turned around and been like, hold up, that's upside down. (laughs) Obviously with Mondrian's, they are geometric by nature and it's probably understandable from every single piece of memorabilia that you can imagine that has a Mondrian painting on it that it can be viewed from any angle, like, I'm just thinking about all the Mondrian towels I've ever seen and I'm like, it doesn't matter which way those hang. But it is really funny because there is quite a bit of documentation on his stuff. So you would expect... he's not some underground artist. Like, these people know about him. He's, you know, his works are in, like, the most iconic museums in the world. And Mm -hmm. during the time he was creating work, there was so much documented about Mm -hmm. his works, about his practice and, and about his studio. So you can't tell me that, you know, it wasn't that hard to access the way this painting was meant to be hung. Think about how much time and money and and expertise goes into making exhibitions like this in institutions Mm -hmm. like this. Like it does usually take five years to put on an exhibition like that. Like the NGV when we had MoMA, that, that was what, three years in the making? Like at least. At least three years. And it was only because MoMA was going through renovation that they gave us yeah. the works. But still, that took like three years, you know, consulting with, you know, curators here, curators in New York. I, I remember reading and finding out that, like, they chose different shades of white for the walls. Mm-hmm. Like little things like that, you know, is get scrutinised and constant, you know, everything from... Sorry, let me start that again. Um, <laughs> like extreme minor details are scru- heavily scrutinised when it comes to exhibitions like this, especially including masters and extremely well-known names. But, yeah, we also have galleries doing really good work. Like I'm really happy to see that the Dallas Museum Art have brought in these glasses especially because red-green colour blindness seems to be common enough that you would hope that researchers and people would be doing more to try to assist those people in seeing the kind of full spectrum of colour, especially in art. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think it's quite a beautiful initiative. I feel like everybody knows someone who's like a little bit colourblind. Like, I, I, I have a couple of friends who are mm-hmm. a little bit colourblind as well. And, and when it comes to like that red green, usually what they see instead is kind of like a brown, mm-hmm. a brownish colour. It could be like a kind of like dirty yellow colour. So mm-hmm. to have a pair, you know, just as simple as a pair of glasses to be put on, I think is a really strong, smart initiative. And I think that will go far. I think it'll soon be as accessible as the audio guide. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. But it would be a really good thing to see in a lot of big public institutions, definitely. Mm-hmm. If galleries are willing to subject people to the dizzying effects of VR headsets, these yeah, the least they can walk do in the park. people who can't actually see the colours. <laughs> Is it bad? I can't stand. I really don't like VR headsets. I think VR headsets are a good idea in more of like a museum 
like a mm-hmm. historical museum. Again, that brings in the numbers and I understand. I might not yeah. be a fan, but I understand. I understand yeah. why people are really into that. I don't know how I feel about them being in art museums. I, to me, it's yeah. just a little bit, I don't know, on the nose or just kind of like a distraction or I feel like it takes away from, you know, the actual artwork because that's the beauty of seeing an artwork in public and it right in front of you and seeing it on a computer screen. And it's like they're just putting the computer screen in mm-hmm. the museum. Yeah. It just seems like a little bit of a step backwards. But I will say that is more of my opinion. I get why people do it. I'm just not yeah. a fan. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> they make me motion sick as well. And I'm like. Well, that's true. They make you. when you move with them on, it's yeah. either delayed or it moves quicker. And it just, yeah, it kind of makes you feel sick. Exactly. However, I will say when pitting them up against my other least favorite thing, immersive exhibitions. <laughs> my mother trying to get me to go to the the <laughs> Yeah, she's like, come with me. I'm like, mom, no. First of all, I, did, I know she gets car sick, so I know she would not be able to handle it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's like, and you know what? I'm, I'm going to say this again. I get it. I very much get it. Like a lot of my friends, even friends of mine who are kind of in the art world, artists, mm-hmm. have gone and enjoyed it. Yep. I, again, I'm not a raging fan. All those lights, yeah, they just, they make me, I'm, I'm just, I'm straight up not a fan. But it's like 60 bucks to get in. Like it's really- It is. It's ridiculous. Like, I love artists who work in that field, like artists who create like an immersive space, but then to just reiterate, you know, old masters, like with the Van Gogh one not that long ago, just, I just feel like there's there's better ways of doing it instead of charging 60 bucks to just see like a giant room with lights. Like I remember the NGV when they had Monet, like, yep. oh, I'm talking at least like a decade ago. I think I was still yep. in high school. They had this beautiful room with this long giant like almost like a vr headset on a wall and mm-hmm. it was beautiful to see that at like the end of the exhibition because it like it had his artwork and then it had his actual home mm-hmm. and things like that it was beautiful and it was kind of similar not as good but similar to the what's that one in tokyo that everybody visits team lab yeah and it's all it's all on instagram and it's like you yeah look up and you look down and it's like crazy yeah the artists who work in that i think it's amazing it's a really beautiful thing and i i get that it is primarily people do primarily appreciate it for its aesthetic value but it's still very Mm -hmm. beautiful but when kind of galleries just I don't even I don't even know if I'd consider them galleries you know I I don't feel like the people that make those like the one that's doing all the masters ones is an art one like they're not really associated with a a museum as much yeah I wouldn't consider it a museum like I'm fairly sure they just pay the fee to use the paintings and then they put it in lights they had all the sunflowers on the ground because there's like giant mirrors in there yeah well so like it looks bigger than what it really is yeah yeah to me it's just kind of it's a little bit of an instagram ploy and it's one of those things where i get it as well like i'm sure the government put have Mm -hmm. their finger in that pie because it brings in tourism Mm -hmm. yeah at the end of the day so you would just hope they'd be done a little bit better better exactly like I can handle them being done I would just like them to be done better so I'm always kind of interested to see what they're doing next like what is after each thing and I'm like I'd love to if like a really good one did come around then I would agree with Mm -hmm. my mother (laughs) yeah now Ella you and I both have been to the Venice Biennale we have yes I've been I've been twice actually I've been to to went the one in 2019 and the mm-hmm. one in 2015 it's amazing it's very much it's more than just the art it's a vibe i, I know that's really putting it really mm-hmm. simple 
but it is such a vibe. It's almost kind of like if the art world had its own nightclub. Like I remember the first time I went, I was like bumping into people I knew from like Melbourne and I was like, yeah. what are you doing here? I'm halfway yeah. around the world. It's like when you bump into your friends at a bar or something, like, mm-hmm. oh my God, why are you here? Like, hello. Yeah. I remember going around and we were just chatting about the artwork and it's amazing. And to see each kind of country come mm-hmm. together and to put on just this amazing show, like I get why it's so popular and why people are obsessed with it because I think it is amazing and it's such an experience. If I had to pick between my favourite year, Mm -hmm. I preferred 2019. Mm -hmm. I thought 2019 was the best. 2019 I was actually able to go see that really iconic robotic Mm -hmm. arm. Yep. That brings in the blood by those two. Ch- I think it was a Chinese artist. Yeah, they were Chinese because I know it was um uh, commi- it was commissioned by the Guggenheim in like 2017, so it had been around for yeah. a while, and then it was included in the Venice Biennale. And to mm-hmm. see that like in the flesh was just mm-hmm. amazing, and I find it quite interesting. And now it's gone a little bit viral in the last mm-hmm. like year or so. Yeah, like, it's seen all I've seen it around and stuff like that. People have like sent it to me, like people I work with. They're like, "Do you know about this artwork?" I'm like, "Yeah, I saw it." Mm-hmm. It's amazing and it was so beautiful. It was very well curated too, I find. So this one here, the 2022 one, the delayed 2021. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just in the 20-odd numbers. Yeah. So it was delayed because of lockdown. So apparently it represents a 35% increase compared to the ticket sales of 2019, which is huge. I have a feeling part of that is definitely from people being so excited to be able to see art in person, to go outside, to go to Venice, to enjoy everything. A hundred percent. I mean, Venice is one of the most beautiful cities I've ever had the Mm -hmm. privilege of even visiting, let alone living there. Like it, it's stunning. The only thing that sucks is the smell. It is one of the most beautiful cities and I get why it is such a popular tourist attraction. And also Venice was one of, the first cities to be hit by COVID. I remember when we were there, people were nervous about the floods. Yeah, well, I, you know, it was actually really horrible. So while I was, I was there at the end of 2019. Yeah, that's when we Venice experienced the worst aqua alta, so the flood that they ever mm-hmm. had in 60 years. Mm-hmm. So that day I was in Padova and I came back and there was like a warning like Mm -hmm. strong winds and rain and I'm like oh god so I'm like I thought I'm not going out I'm not going to a bar I'm going straight home from the train station and the beautiful part about Venice is you can literally walk everywhere you can walk from one to the other until it takes half an hour yeah I walked from the train station Mm -hmm. back to the apartment I was living in and like my umbrella like inverted and I'm like oh god am I gonna make it like I just made it home and then so what they also have as well is at night they've got just this massive siren in the middle of the city and it just starts Mm -hmm. blaring if there's going to be high aqua alta mm-hmm. and this thing, it might just blare once or twice during yep. the night. It wouldn't mm-hmm. turn off. It just kept going and going and going. And we're like, what is happening? And there is like an app that you download when you're living there. You check it the same way you check if it's going to rain or not. Yep. And it tells you how high the water levels will be. So whether you mm-hmm. need to bring your boots to actually go out in public. Yeah. And it recorded, it was like over 200 centimetres worth mm-hmm. of water. Yep. Like the water levels rising. Mm-hmm. So, so that's taller than me. I'm 186. So the water levels yep. were higher than me throughout the streets of Venice. And I didn't leave my apartment. I couldn't leave for three days. And when I finally left to see the aftermath, it was just, it was so heartbreaking. 
Like I remember seeing going into this cathedral and there were just these two young boys just trying to push out all the water that mm-hmm. had like entered. Like the cathedral had been deserted. Mm-hmm. Apparently it aged the cathedral in San Marco Square by 30 years. Oof. This one storm. It was horrendous. If you ever get a chance, Google it, look it up, because the photos are just heartbreaking. And to think that I was like, damn, well, that happened. I remember I called mm-hmm. my parents. I'm like, I'm alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was November. And then December, I left. Mm-hmm. And I went to the UK to visit some family. And then yeah. when I got home, Venice was the highest recorded city in like all the world with COVID numbers. Mm. people who I was living there with, who I was interning with, were messaging me because they'd been from you know, other parts of Europe or South America. And they're yeah. like, oh, we're not allowed to leave. We're like being locked in and you couldn't leave the state, even if you wanted to, because they'd had so many COVID numbers and they were fear of spreading it. And my mom found out and she was like counting her like, blessings. They let me leave. <laughs> like I yeah. left before it kicked off because I think while I was there, yeah. it was just spreading in China. Mm-hmm. It hadn't quite spread to kind of, yeah. it was being reported that this new disease was spreading throughout China and I think parts of Africa maybe, but it hadn't mm-hmm. quite become the global phenomenon that it, that it is now. Yeah. And then when I got to Australia, I think like, yeah, like maybe two, three weeks into me returning home to Australia, it had broken out. Going back to, sorry, what we were initially talking about, yeah. it is really good to see ticket sales like that increasing and people being really excited to just get back into a gallery space and seeing all the art that mm-hmm. all these artists have been working on for the past few years. Like, I think that's amazing. Speaking of people who are very keen on getting into gallery spaces, what do you think of this Met Gala story? Oh, it's hilarious. I would do that it's- too, 100%. If I knew, like, Anna Wintour's assistant or something, I would be calling, like, have you got my ticket? Yeah. I want to be there. I don't even think I'd deny it. I'd be like, yes, I wanted to go to the Met Gala, but mm-hmm. I don't know Kim Kardashian and I'm not sleeping with a high enough level celebrity. So I mm-hmm. called my contacts and that's how I got in. <laughs> exactly. Definitely still the hot parties. Do you have any thoughts about the upcoming Met Gala theme? I only know that the theme is Karl Lagerfeld. Yes. So presumably it's going to be something about Karl and Chanel. Because the exhibition is always that little bit different, isn't it? Is, is, so is the exhibition going to be Chanel? The, the Well, the first thing that was announced was the exhibition. So the exhibition is going to be of Karl Lagerfeld's works and I think also his sketches of his designs. Ah, okay. So sometimes like the red carpet mm-hmm. differ a little bit from the yeah. actual exhibition, but this year they're the same. So I know the red carpet is going to be Karl Lagerfeld and Chanel. Yeah. It's just weird because Versace is like on the board. Like Donatella is like on the board. Mm-hmm. So Versace always yep. kind of get the last save. You ever see like the red carpet? Mm-hmm. Whoever's last or like second last is always Versace. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like Karl Lagerfeld was, you know, he was an amazing photographer mm-hmm. and designer. So I. We'll be very interested to see what the red carpet will hold. I always, uh, you know, on my Instagram, I definitely judge harshly. I oh, yes. Come that weekend of May, I go full Miranda Priestley. I'm like, yeah. excuse, that is terrible. Love. Yeah. No, we have expectations. And like exactly. flashback, flashback to the last time we had a designer-specific exhibition would have been Ray Kawakubo. Such an innovative designer. And it was awesome to see like so many of his works on mm-hmm. that carpet. But I think the issue here is Chanel. I love Chanel, but Chanel is very simple. It's very classic. It's very yeah. elegant. You think Jack mm-hmm. Kennedy and yeah. you don't think the outlandishness, you know, yeah. of the Met Gala. The last few that we've had that I would have been really impressed with 
was 100% heavenly bodies. Yeah. Flat out, the mm-hmm. best. It was amazing. Yeah. Designers really pulled out the stops. And mm-hmm. I loved camp. I feel like there were a lot of celebrities that low-key ruined it, but mm-hmm. there were still some really amazing looks for camp. Because it is, at the end of the day, for the costume department. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I love the kind of costume nature of the Met Gala when stars and designers are kind of given freedom and they can make it as big and as beautiful and as bold as they want to. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested to see how it's going to work with Chanel. Yes. We will talk more about it when we get more details, definitely. It's hard to say at this point. There's been quite a few Chanel exhibitions that have been around the world recently, including one at our beloved NGV in Melbourne. Yes, yes. So we shall see how this one fares, especially given that while Karl Lagerfeld is the most strongly associated with Chanel, he did also design for Fendi for a significant period of time. Yeah. As and well. he also, he had his own brand too. Like mm-hmm. he wasn't, he wasn't kind of exclusive. And again, he, um, he photographed for everybody. Yes. You know, he was a photographer of, of the high end designers, you know, he didn't just do Chanel. It's kind of all over the map. So hopefully it isn't too chanel orientated again i don't think it will be because mm-hmm. versace kind of have that final say is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon ella from our list oh definitely delvi love yes her love her <laughs> so much i aspire to be that minus mm-hmm. the fail time yes i think it is so amazing and so funny that she was able to con her way into some of the richest people of high society in New York. Genius. I think it's so mm-hmm. smart. You know, I just kind of wish she didn't swindle all the money so that she didn't go to jail, but mm-hmm. it's given her icon status, you know. People yeah. love it. She's made it. It took a couple of years in jail, you know. She pulled a Martha Stewart and she's made it. And I love that. I think that is the ultimate entrepreneur. I think it mm-hmm. really touches on the strong commerciality of the commercial art world. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's very hilarious that, you know, someone with no real art background at all was able to con all these people yeah to thinking she was of high society high fashion high art high everything and i love mm-hmm. that for her and adelvi if you ever hear this i love you and i think it's great it's like the peak of performance art it is like yeah i'm waiting for it to come out like james franco did at the end of his like snl roast this has been a performance art piece <laughs> <laughs> that's what i want that's i would die and then I would also love to see, try and see Christy spin it and sell it. <laughs> oh, that fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Traversing new grounds there. But yeah, four paintings. I think she's in all of them, actually. Like, it's just so iconic. Like, four self-portraits of the disgraced heiress while mm-hmm. on house arrest. Like, just that in and of itself. There's your title. <laughs> yeah. Next comes the tell-all book, and she's a millionaire for real. Exactly. So the four paintings, like, even if you haven't looked at them, just think about this, like, and the images it evokes. The four paintings, they're called Danger Zone, Good Behaviour, No One Is Safe, Prowling in Prada. God, it sounds like a Gaga album. (laughs) Pop uh, pop 2.0, it sounds like a Gaga album. (laughs) She knows her brand. I'm here for it. Yep. Get it, honestly. Love her. Yep. All right. So now we are going to be moving on to our main segment of today's show, which is going to be about all the climate protests that have been popping up and the group that's associated with them. But also we're going to talk about 
our thoughts about this form of climate protesting where we are leveraging art heavily. Once again, this is something that's pretty high profile. I'm sure everyone has seen at least one of the stories by now about these protests. A lot of them have been accredited to a group that calls themselves Just Stop Oil. However, it does seem like associated factions of the group around the world also have a name that's some kind of riff on last generation in the various languages. Their main shtick is basically to throw paint, food, oil, some kind of substance at a high profile artwork. Sometimes they glue themselves to it as well while they kind of use that opportunity to grab everyone's attention and also talk about their message, which is very much that the earth is dying and that we need to be doing more to value it and save it the same way that people value and think about saving and trying to preserve the artworks that are on display. When thinking about this, when thinking about this phenomenon and everything around it, the first instance of something like this occurring, which is not affiliated with Just Stop Oil at all, was at the end of May when someone visited the Louvre while dressed in drag and in a wheelchair. Like nano drag too, not just, yeah, not just drag. He was like an old lady and I love that. <laughs> yeah. And then in front of the oh-so-famous Mona Lisa just decides to jump out of the wheelchair, attempt to smash the bulletproof glass and throw cake at it as well gets tackled out by security and in that instance that individual was also rambling about how people need to think about the planet and think about the earth that kind of climate message was there so presumably from there the people at just stop oil got a little bit inspired to pull some similar shenanigans and their kind of ventures started in june on june 30th was the first reported attack that's accredited to Just Stop Oil. Prior to that, I think they had done a lot of disruptive protests in other spaces as well on the streets and kind of charging into facilities. But this is the first instance of it being art related. They attacked Van Gogh's peach trees and blossom at the Courtauld Gallery. Shortly afterwards in the subsequent days, they also targeted John Constable's The Haywain at London's National Gallery, Horatio McCulloch's My Hearts in the Highlands at Glasgow's Kelvin Grove Museum, and J.M.W. Turner's Thompson Earlian Harp at Manchester Art Gallery. These ones, the protesters glued themselves to the artworks, but also in the case of the Haywain, someone had clearly made and photoshopped a version of it in the future <laughs> in the context of a climate apocalypse. So they oh, had yeah, printed like that out. Okay. So, Camp. Yeah. Since then, it has gone around the world. So after that, we had Primavera by Botticelli in the Uffizi in Florence. It attacked, the protesters glued their palms to the glass. And also with these very early instances, we actually have gotten to the point in terms of law enforcement and the justice system where people have been charged in these instances with guilty verdicts and had in some cases also had to serve time for their actions in these protests. So in the case of the Van Gogh at the Courtauld, first of all, apparently it took three hours to unglue the protesters from the painting. I love to have just like ripped that kid's hand off. <laughs> but like, I feel like that's that's a lawsuit in of itself. Like that's 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 assault. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. The security guards 
getting in trouble. Like, security guards have their own kind of rules and they can do so much to escort the criminal out. And that is inside of a bar. So I imagine the rules are even harsher inside a museum. Exactly. Yeah, they're probably there with, like, the solvent, like, trying to, like, hey, you see people um, restoring paintings and taking the vines. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what was happening to get the glue off. (laughs) Yeah. The cotton balls. (laughs) Yeah, they were charged with being guilty of criminal damage to the frame, which is also, like, dated to the 18th century. So Those frames, there are some frames that are worth more than the painting. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Probably not in the case of Van Gogh, but it's still a pretty pricey frame, definitely. So during the trial, apparently what the protesters said was um, that they didn't think it would cause that much damage (laughs) because uh, glue can come off. And I'm like, have you ever, like, messed around with, like, a hot glue gun accidentally? I want to be like, have you ever done a protest? Like, why why do something so, like, shocking, so, like, clearly – with the idea to damage and they'd be like i didn't think it would cause that much damage like you right? threw food out of painting and you're worried about like don't that's just terrible yeah <laughs> please don't destroy any more paintings it's just getting stupid now <laughs> it's just getting stupid yes so subsequently let's see what else do we have let's go through a couple of the highlights we have lacoon and his sons the sculpture in rome we have a raphael sistine madonna so probably the one that at least everyone's heard about because it's one, a very beloved, very treasured painting, and also it was the most graphic and also has the right amount of memory in order for it to have hit all the headlines and the internet wavelengths at the at the right resonance is on October the 14th when they attack Angloth's famous sunflowers. At that time, it was on display in London's National Gallery and they threw Heinz tomato soup onto the painting at close range in front of people. And then they glued themselves to the wall and they made their speech, their classic little spiel. Yeah. Was this the first time you heard about it, Ella? So no, the first one I heard about in relation to all of this kind of in the media, because the thing is, it's quite interesting, you know, damaging artwork goes back decades. Like the, the mm-hmm. f- first one I ever read about when I heard about someone literally just going up and damaging an artwork was the guy, he was, a, I remember this because he was Australian. He went, I'm fairly sure it was the 60s, an Australian man flew to Italy Mm-hmm. to damage the theater. Mm, of course. So if you don't know it, it's that giant sculpture in the Vatican of Mother Mary, even though she you know, looks like she's in her 20s, holding a dying Jesus in her arms. And this guy was, he was crazy, he was a freaking lunatic, but he took a sledgehammer to this sculpture, to this marble sculpture, because back in those days there wasn't a lot of security around it, I guess, assuming it's marble. Maybe they weren't aware back then that, Skin oils can actually corrode marble, but that is very much a thing. People used to be able to walk up and almost kind of touch it and, like, you know, there wasn't a lot of security around it. And, yeah, this guy, he ended up being institutionalised. They sent him back to Australia and he was charged, fined, but he took a sledgehammer to the face of Mary and parts of Jesus. Like, he was able to smash a solid part of this sculpture and since then it's been restored. And he was screaming that he was Jesus or that he was God. Like, he he was very much crazy. There was no political thing here. Yeah. That is the first instance, I think, of destroying an artwork that I can think of that's just very iconic. There's no photo of him actually doing it, but there's definitely, like, photos of him being, like, pulled away from the sculpture and you could see a lot of the damage was to Mary's face and hands I think Mm -hmm. um and it's yeah it's really heartbreaking because it's such an iconic piece 
But, you know, for a guy who's a little bit crazy to attack a painting, um, to attack a painting or a sculpture, to me that just seems a little bit more justified than oil and climate change. Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, but the issue with these kind of attacks is that people and even the media focus on the act, they don't focus on the message. Climate change is very much a real issue. What these kids are screaming at random visitors of random museums are very real issues. And people Mm -hmm. ignore that because someone just threw a can of soup at a Van Gogh painting. That's what they focus on. They're focusing on the act and not the message. And that's where I feel that these protesters are kind of losing out. Because it gets to a point where people find it ridiculous and then they make fun of it and then no one cares. That's kind of the kind of cycle that things like this go through. We're currently in the stage of where people are outraged and people are focusing on the act and we're moving in to that stage of people making fun of it and people making memes out of it. The first instance of a meme mm-hmm. was Little Nas X. Poorly photoshopped the Van Gogh sunflowers being thrown at Andy Warhol's painting of Campbell's soup. And I thought it was genius. I nearly peed. I thought that was so funny. It was so so good. Yeah, it was like, I'll avenge you, Van Gogh. It was like the caption and it was hilarious. But like, we're starting to enter into that point where people, like the public and the media are kind of outraged by these acts, ignoring the message to the point where we're making fun of it. So we make fun of it, then we get our laugh and then we stop caring. Mm -hmm. And then this really important message that these people are trying to get across is lost. And I've had conversations with, you know, other art professionals and close friends of mine asking them what they think about this and two points came up that I thought were very real is why don't these people attack something that is more related to climate change Mm -hmm. like there are so many more entities companies facilities that are really contributing museums and art institutions I don't see them contributing nearly as much to climate change as other companies Mm-hmm. attack oil wells attack you know people who are producing oil what you were saying before people just churning out nfts those those using so much electricity which is creating mm-hmm. fossil fuels and at the end of the day damaging our environment yeah focus your attention on things that are actually damaging the environment because then you get the message across people stop looking at the act and start listening to the message when the message and the act are one and are similar and are able to complement each other. That's not the case here. So people are just focusing on the ridiculousness of the act. The one with the dude who glued his head to Mm -hmm. a girl with a pearl earring. Yeah. What? (laughs) That just seems, it almost seems like a, like a dare. Is that Mm -hmm. just me? I feel like with the kind of buzz that the sunflowers got, it did end up leading to more bizarre style protests taking place. And you're right that they became less and less related to their message. The only link that they could ever draw was this idea of you take care of art, take care of the planet, which while true, isn't particularly strong from the perspective of it being a protest, I feel like that's twofold. One is the case that like you don't know what kind of action that they're looking for. They've never been clear about that. All they say is like take care of the planet. Their ideal situation is that like something tangible happens, but most likely we don't have any sense of what that action is and you don't have any sense of if they know what that action is. Well, at the end of the day, I don't think they do because or else they give it to us. That's the the whole point of a protest is – you know, this is wrong with the world. This is what our upperclassmen and what our politicians aren't looking at. And here's 
what we as the people need to do so that they change these policies and that they can fix what is clearly wrong. But they've missed that break. It's so messy and there's so many things wrong with what they're doing. It's a very roundabout way for them to talk to presumably the people that they want to get to in the end, which are people who have the power to make the change. The only kind of change I see feasibly happening from something like this protest is a national or international body being like, fine, we'll revise our climate mission or whatever. It'll be something as simple as like, we're going to tax the rich or like there's going to be more taxing on global emissions, which is pretty much what's already happening. Exactly. It really is unclear what they're looking for. Like you said, it's a meme. Little Nas X encapsulate it perfectly where you just like throw X strange thing at Y precious thing. So gluing your head to the girl with the pearl earring, throwing mashed potato at Monet's haystacks throwing pea soup at Van Gogh's The Sower. It's like they've started to think a lot more ironically about the connection between the thing that they're throwing to the artworks they're throwing it to rather than, like, the message to, like, the action. It almost seems like a bad dare. Like, you remember and you used to run, like, you go on, like, a museum trip and it's like how much, you know, how many dinosaur bones can you touch? It's like Mm -hmm. that on steroids. If I'm a politician... I'm, I'm high up in the government somewhere, which will yeah. probably never happen. If I'm a politician and I'm seeing this happen around this big museum institutions, mm-hmm. I'm contacting the gallery owners and I'm asking them, I'm like, how do we stop this? I'm not thinking about climate change. I'm thinking how do we stop this? Because exactly. the what the, these museums bring in tourism, which brings in money for the government, which I guess that in and of itself is another whole argument as to where that money goes. Mm-hmm. But... That is more what I'm worried about. And that's what's already started happening. After they threw the mashed potatoes onto Monet's haystacks, the German collector who owns that museum, Hasso Plattner, temporarily closed that museum, cutting off the access to the works to everyone. They've said it's for the reason of reevaluating the security measures to make sure that they know how to prevent this from happening again. But... You can just see that happening where sometimes if they just think the risk is not worth it, then they just not put these works out as often for people to see. And that just ruins it for everybody. Private collectors kind of have that option. I can't, I don't see any major government funded institutions shutting mm-hmm. down because of this, but def- I do see in the future definitely a lot of private collectors just being like, you know what, nah. I'm you not. can't have our works for your shows. Yeah, exactly. If exactly. We're worried about them being exactly. attacked. Yeah, so uh, gallerists will be less likely to loan works in fear of this happening. Mm-hmm. There'll be you know, reduced opening hours. These actions, none of that is going to contribute to the climate change that we need. Yeah. And also now it means that publicly funded museums are trying to be more stringent with their security policies, which usually means it's going to be more annoying and less enjoyable for the audience members Mm -hmm. in general, the visitors to the museum. You're going to see more security guards, which are not good for the vibe of the museum. You're going to be asked to cloak more bags and jackets and smaller bags and jackets than currently previously other standards. If your bag can hold a Campbell's soup can... It's basically like airport security. It's a, yeah. That's what it's going to be like to get into a museum. Yeah. And they want proof you aren't going to do anything stupid. And we've lived this long as a society mm-hmm. with only maybe a few major hiccups and yeah. damages to artworks. But if you just, I, I just find it so amusing that also that these people are doing it to works that are already protected. Yeah. Like, I just want to throw this out there and for people who don't know this. So... The Mona Lisa at the Louvre 
is quite literally the most famous painting in the free world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've got a nana who, uh, a dude in drag, a nana drag, who was able to get through security with a goddamn cake. Hats off to you. If it was me, I'd probably be sitting there eating the cake. But <laughs> he's gotten to the room that is usually full of bloody tourists. Like, it's like I've been there and it mm-hmm. is very hard to get to the front. But this dude, hats off to him, managed to get to the front. So he threw a cake at this painting. Now, let me tell you about the protection of this painting. This painting is about the size of, I don't know, a laptop. Or like an A4 piece of paper. It's not, it's not, the Mona Lisa is not very big. It's actually quite small. And it is behind at least two layers of bulletproof glass. There are also conspiracy theories. And honestly, this is probably one of the few art conspiracy theories that I would believe. Mm -hmm. Someone proved to me with a little bit more evidence, but it wouldn't surprise me if this was true. But the one that's actually on display isn't the original. (laughs) And that the original is in some storage locker deep down inside the Louvre. Like, it's there, mm-hmm. it's, in, it's in Paris, not, like, stolen or anything, but it's there where only probably the director and the president of France have yes. access to get it. And, like, one conservator that's had to go through, like, yes. six years' worth of security clearance yes. <laughs> to get through. So that is probably... So it wouldn't surprise me if that was true. But yes. if not, if that's not true, and that is the real Mona Lisa. So initially all this dude has done is thrown a bloody um, cake at a piece of glass. If a mm-hmm. bullet can't penetrate it, neither can a cake. Mm-hmm. Now all this will do is it will just go down in history as something that was pretty fucking funny mm-hmm. and not as a climate change action. Because at the end of the day, the ultimate thing that got me or at least the world kind of woken up about climate change was Greta Thunberg. Mm-hmm. And that was just a young girl turning around and saying that, you know, if this doesn't happen, I won't be able to do the things that past generations have been able to take it for granted. And that shook the world. Mm-hmm. Everybody cared. Everybody was like, who is this kid and why is she spitting the truth? <laughs> yep. Something so simple was able to get that message across. And the guys doing these protests aren't that much older than she is. Mm-hmm. So if someone so young was able to just turn around, call Donald Trump a dickhead and tell people to wake up to climate change, why can't you do the same? Why do you have to do these ridiculous acts that people are just eventually going to make fun of and forget Yeah, and completely ignore the very real message that you're trying to get across? That is very much how I feel about this. Yeah. So Aileen Getty, who is the daughter of... John Paul Getty II, so part of the Getty family, who um, did build their fortune on fossil fuels, actually bankrolls and kind of helps with funding a lot of these climate activists. She wrote an op-ed that got published in The Guardian not long after this protest, explaining why she supports them and her take on things. The way that she frames it is that The point of these protests wasn't to destroy or damage the paintings. They targeted these paintings knowing knowing that they were protected by protective glass. The point was to strike a nerve, disrupt the status quo, and to call attention to the dire state of the planet. And she kind of frames it as that it has uh, caught our attention and kick-started a conversation. And I think we basically disagree with her on what kind of conversation that is because everyone's like, yeah, but not to this end. Like, yeah, we know that the climate crisis is real, but, like, 
this is not the way to do it. Like, unfortunately, that's the turn that this conversation has taken and nothing's really progressed in terms of the way that they're protesting except for the absurdity of it, which is the problem. At least in this article, she does go through some more tangible things about governments and corporations stopping the expansion of fossil fuels and that kind of thing. However, it still remains pretty vague and she has a lot of money. A lot of it's inherited money from trusts and that kind of thing. Irony is it's trusts that have gone into building some of the biggest museums in the world. Yeah. You know, the J. Paul Getty Foundation is huge. Yeah. There's a sad irony. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately it's spun a lot of copycat climate protesters doing similar things and I'm sure they will realise that this is an expensive way to protest because of the repercussions of the kind of damage that you can risk to artworks if you don't think this through properly. So, for instance, early on in kind of the slower protests in Australia, the Extinction Rebellion, which is an associated with the Just Stop Oil folks, glued their hands to one of the Picasso works that was in the Picasso exhibition that the National Gallery of Victoria was putting on at the time. They glued themselves to massacre in Korea. Already at that point people were wondering whether or not this was the right way to go about doing activism for the climate crisis, especially because the work that they had chosen has its own political context because it is a work that is addressing the American atrocities during the Korean War. It would make so much more sense if we were protesting something about North Korea, the US's situation, you know, Trump and what's his name's kind of yeah unlikely friends yeah but then when i tell you it's a climate protest you're like oh what you ruined it it's like now we don't care yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and then after that so about a month after that two climate protesters from a different protest group and this is really funny i find targeted andy warhol's campbell's suit prints for a protest in this case i think yeah they glued their hands to it and they also scribbled a little bit on the glass with blue ink, basically. At least they've thought a little bit more about the message, which is really targeting the fact that Australia's fossil fuel subsidies and being Australia being the world's largest exporter of coal. You know what? It, it still doesn't. It, the two don't can't coexist together. Yeah. It makes sense. This action protesting that involves like you know a couple of individuals destroying something with something, or you know this this kind of idea. It's got to be like a billboard. Mm-hmm. It's got to be you're driving down the highway, you see it, you read it, you get it instantly. And then that mm-hmm. message comes across. You need to be able to digest the message. Like the daughter of Getty shouldn't have to write an op-ed about what it's about. We, yeah. should, know. we should know instantly yeah. what it's about and what people are trying to do. Put it this way. If you were watching one of the, the cans being thrown at in another language, would you know what it was about? Like let's say, uh, you know, I've thrown a can of soup at a van Gogh. i've glued my hand to the wall and i start speaking in russian Mm -hmm. would you know have any idea what i'm protesting no exactly like yeah i'm gonna say prior to all these things yeah you'd have no idea what i was talking about Mm -hmm. you're just thinking i'm sorry i can't like what the fuck is this dipshit doing if i wasn't wearing a shirt that didn't say like stop oil yeah like you wouldn't know and it's just so messy and there's just so many things wrong with it that people only have the choice to focus on the ridiculousness of the act. 
even their most like the most interrelated one that they've done is still so far off the mark because while the UN climate talks were going on which is a climate we're talking about how to save the planet blah 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 and they were happening in Egypt by the way of all places of all places at the same time we had three different protests in three non-Egypt countries on the same day as trying to be in association with it, which I don't think worked because I'm going to tell you what happened and you're going to tell me what you think is going to hit the headlines the hardest. One, climate talks happening in Egypt. Two, the French faction go go to the Bourse de Commerce and douse Charles Ray's stainless steel sculpture, Horse and Rider with Orange Paint. We have the Vigeland Sculpture Park in Oslo. So one of their sculptures called Monolith by Gustav Vigeland was doused in orange paint. And we have in Milan a bag of flour being poured onto Andy Warhol's 1979 painted BMW at the Fabrica del Vapore Art Centre. What do you think would grab the most attention? Oh, Warhol, 100%. People are caring about Warhol. People aren't caring about the, talk, the the more important issue of mm-hmm. Egypt trying to figure out how to, you know, reduce their carbon footprint and talk about climate change. We're focused on Andy Warhol's car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess to an extent it is wrong of all things for the media to focus on. But again, yeah. it's like, what's your thought process behind this? Why, why douse the car in flower if it's an accident then okay that's funny and yeah it makes the front page but clearly this was an intentional act so what's the intent and then things like that then take away from real news stories like what you were saying before about Egypt and climate change because being a freaking hot country they are definitely a part of the world that very much is affected by climate change mm-hmm Definitely. And like ICOM in the midst of all this put out a statement that was co-signed by a lot of museum directors. Yeah, I was waiting for them to come out. I feel like it, they took their kind of sweet time. Yeah. They coming out about it. This is the second time ICOM has had to come on to face the general public, not just museums, to be like, hey guys, it looks like we have to condemn this in front of everyone now. First they had to do it with Kim Kardashian's Marilyn dress stunt and now they're here being like, I don't think you guys understand how fragile these irreplaceable objects actually are, you know? Yeah, they're pretty much coming out and being like, guys, please stop. I get that you want to relay a message, but like once you destroy these, that's it. They're like, if it was like a hostage situation and they're like the parent on the other end of the phone, like, please, you don't understand what you're doing. Just stop. They're just camping like, hi, guys. So just to make, to make sure you remember, there's a reason why there's glass on the paintings and like you shouldn't try to test that glass. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> please don't. We don't pay our conservatives enough. There's a lot of acids inside a tomato soup, please. <laughs> People don't care about art enough as is. Honestly, if anything, this was probably creating more of a buzz for museums. I'm imagining people are like going and like kind of filming, waiting for something to happen. <laughs> God, yeah. So I feel like we've, we've very much summed up our feelings towards this. It's like bad vibes, unclear. Unclear message. Very poorly organized people are focusing on the overt act. And that is the issue because at the end of the day, they're just distracting people from a very serious message. I'm not condemning protests. I've been a part of protests. 
And I think protesting is very much a solid way for us as people to kind of get across our feelings and the messages we want to kind of convey to those who do run our countries and our nations. And I think it is a very strong and useful tool for us to get those messages across. But when done poorly like this, the message is lost. And then it also gives good protests a bad name. If you want to target major organisations and that kind of thing and you have the money to do so, you can figure it out. Yeah, that's what Getty should be doing. Not with her, her, again, those those people are worth a fortune and a a lot of that old money comes from harming the environment. I'm fairly sure that's how the Guggenheims got their start in the world too. I think it might have been oil, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly sure it was something not necessarily environmentally sound. Yes. But with nowadays and with all that money still flowing, put it towards funding, money. Money money makes the world go round. Capitalism makes the world go round. (laughs) That is going to be better than any protest. Mm-hmm. In this case, maybe not in other political aspects of society, but definitely this one. Moving on from this, but also to tie up this idea, uh, it does seem to be more of a thing now in like this capacity of like with some kind of political reasoning more so to target art and destroy artworks. We've seen it happen a couple of times now and... I think we could just go on to end because we've had a pretty in-depth discussion on this and we don't want to drag this episode out too much longer. In the UK on Channel 4, there was this one-off TV show hosted by comedian Jimmy Carr, who often is seen pretty frequently on all the British comedy panel shows, called Jimmy Carr Destroys Art. Literally or like? So the premise of the show is that he's looking at artists who are problematic and the format of the show is that there is a debate that happens about the artist and whether or not they can be separated from their art. That that in and of itself is one of <laughs> right. Dicey spicy debates. Like even you think you know they, they, that's what they should be protesting with Picasso. The dude was a raging misogynist. Like yeah. you know, protest women's rights and do something to one of his paintings on this show. After the debate where they have people on to argue for or against the works, the audience is invited to vote about whether or not to destroy the artworks if they think that there is a point to the side who says, well, you can't separate this problematic person from the artworks they create. And I think that's where it gets into weird territory because they're pretty dramatic destructions of the artwork. It's like flamethrowers, shredders, paintball pellets. Yeah. So they actually go at it at a Picasso apparently as well in this show. As they should. He was awful to women. But do you think that they should have destroyed the artwork? Don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem and that's where we get into trouble here. It's so hard. Like the man shaped the modernist era. He's one of the most famous painters known to man. And yeah. some of his artworks are beautiful, stunning. I I am a fan. If he was awful, he was such a bad man. Like that pervy, creepy guy you see staring at you on the tram. That was Picasso. He was a yeah. bad dude. But it is such a strong issue. And honestly, I don't know if I can answer it. I find it easier to debate cultural repatriation. <laughs> I find mm-hmm. that debate easier. Yeah. They're talking about separating the art from the artist. 
Because the end of, I guess at the end of the day, we've all got baggage, just some baggage worse than others. I guess the question becomes, where's the cutoff? If, if we as a society can find the cutoff point as to like, this is the point where if you cross this line, your art can't be separated from who you are. Mm-hmm. So we can destroy it, we can condemn it, we can do what we want with it. But the problem is I don't think we ever will. I think that line's always going to move, which is why you can't destroy anything. I don't think we as a society can come down to a succinct and solid decision as to where that line is. Like I think about exactly. I think when people like the art so much, they become ignorant to the artist. And it's very like, I don't want to know because the art is so good and I enjoy it. I want to be ignorant to it. Yeah. I think the, the smart thing now to do is be aware that we will still enjoy the art, the music, the movie, the actor, the actress, whatever. We just need to acknowledge the fact that they are not a good person, that they have done things that are morally reprehensible. Yeah, I think the key takeaway is you as an individual have to think about if you like this individual who's done terrible things, their artwork or whatever they've created, being able to separate that from being supportive of those actions, being able to really think deeply about your relationship to that artwork and First of all, is the artist at all profiting or benefiting off your enjoyment of it? Think about the way that you use it now, that you consume it now, that you know these things. The thing is with every single individual, every single work, it's going to be a case-by-case situation. You need to do the work in order to figure that out. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that with that, we have talked about a good amount of things and I think that's a good note for us to end on just to have everyone think about these things in a world where trendy viral short buzzy high fructose things yeah it's your age that we're all trying to navigate through yeah. and make sense of exactly so you have to think about like what you let grab your attention how you let it grab your attention because that at the end of the day that's what's fueling these climate protests of they want to grab your attention and they're trying to play this game with you. People need to demonstrate to them that it's not working or it's not the way to do it. And that there are smarter ways of doing it and it has been done correctly in the past. I get the idea that they're looking for something snappy and something that people are going to look at and think of and not want to continue to scroll mm-hmm. or swipe. Yep. And they have found that action, but then the issue is that, that the message then, the reason why they're doing that action is lost. So it's finding that balance and as a fan of protesting I truly hope they find it yeah for our listeners that means that you can think about how this would impact you what deserves your attention and what doesn't deserve your attention very importantly and also what's worthy to be acted upon versus not but yeah something that is worth acting upon is obviously listening to our podcast hearing about all our hot takes so Ella where can we find you on the social media on the social media, my art Instagram is faux art fair girl. So F A U X A R T F A I R G I R L on Instagram. Excellent. And you can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and you can find me on Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g double underscore. You can also find 
the podcast at Art Crimes Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also find us on YouTube where our channel name is just Crimes Against Art as well. Crimes Against Art is also part of the Edge of the Crowd network. So you can find Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at Edge of the Crowd. And you can read any of the Edge of the Crowd articles at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. Thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next week.